So welcome to season two of the AFT Construction Podcast. And we do have some exciting news coming up. So these next couple episodes will be on our existing platform, but we're going to be moving our podcast to a new platform. Uh, will not change the way that you consume them. They'll still be available on iTunes, Spotify, but also many more resources out there for our listeners. And it, we're going to be working on, again, the sound quality and the guest appearances. So, so some exciting things on the horizon. And again, I'm Brad Levitt, president of A Finer Touch Construction. We have an amazing guest list to you of people that specialize in business, marketing, social media, entrepreneurship, and most of all, how to build a great company. AFT Construction is a local commercial and residential general contractor located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we are continuously seeking ways to bring value to our industry clients network. Please make sure to subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And today we have a very exciting guest. We have Taylor Plosser Davis joining us, and Taylor is the founder of TPD Architect, a residential architecture, interiors, and planning firm that specializes in helping families live longer in homes they love. As an architect, Taylor is focused on thoughtful design strategies to address the unique needs of her clients. Whether that involves working with a growing family or a couple downsizing for the next chapter. A mother of three, Taylor enjoys travel and her tap dancing classes. She is a counselor of the Birmingham chapter of the American Institute of Architects and is a member of the advisory committee of the Morse Fund for the Design Arts. She received her undergraduate degree from Princeton University and a master's in architecture from the University of Virginia. She is a member of the AIA, is NCARB certified and recently completed her Aging in Place certification through the National Association of Home Builders. Definitely make sure you follow her on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. And you'll really love this discussion with Taylor. She gave some huge insight into how to design architecture for those that are aging in place. You know, we talked about some of the advantages of about how to set up a consultation service and bring value to your network, you know, things that she's doing behind the scenes, how to adapt, you know, how to work around uh, the ever-changing environment through COVID, and of course, you know, you, if, if you love what you do, you're going to bring value and you're going to put the time and effort behind it. Um, and again, you know, she just has such great experience, you know, with her background in education and some of the very signature projects she worked on in Manhattan. And then has taken that flavor down to Birmingham where she's at now and just really enjoyed this conversation with Taylor. She does such a great job and has so much value to bring. And of course, a big thanks to our sponsor for making this possible, Sub-Zero Group Southwest. Again, can't say enough good things about Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove. They've been such great partners. So if you're starting a new kitchen project, the Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom is the place to start. It provides an immersive environment to help you realize the possibilities of your future kitchen. Discover what it may feel like, look like, taste like, all in an exploratory, no-pressure showroom. No matter who you are, consumer, owner, or member of the trade community, the showroom is ready to assist you throughout the entire project. I visit the Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom in North Scottsdale quite often. It is just a few blocks from my office, so it's the perfect place to meet with my clients and the designer on the project. When we arrive, we meet with a showroom consultant whose sole focus is catering the visit to our needs. They seek to understand what products may be best suited for the client, and then explain and demonstrate special features and functionality. We can browse the complete line of Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove appliances and then view them in beautifully designed vignettes, helping my clients envision how their appliances might look like in their home. The best part is that the consumers can interact with the products, turn the knobs, open the drawers, and ignite the flames, discovering the best fit for them. With the help of the showroom consultant, each visit is truly unique to the client. The relationship with the showroom does not end with the appliance selection process. Throughout the entire project, the showroom team is there to provide helpful solutions and offer advice and assistance. After appliances are installed, owners can expect a lifetime of support and helpful resources. The Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom is the place to start, experience, and bring your vision to life. Schedule an appointment at your nearest showroom by visiting www.subzero-wolf.com backslash showroom. So welcome today to Construction Podcast today, and I'm fortunate to host Taylor Davis with Taylor Plosser Davis, uh, Architecture and Design. So welcome, Taylor. Thanks, Brad. I'm excited. Yeah, it's great to have you. And, you know, I was going through your resume, very impressive, you know, your background and your work experience. And, you know, before we dive into some of the experience you've had over the years. And, and one thing I want to speak about is when you started your firm, you started in the recession, which I'm sure was an adventure. So we'll definitely dive into that. But, you know, Taylor, when you're looking at architecture, you know, what are some design features to consider, you know, for clients that are looking at their forever home, you know, from design and architecture, what are some musts that they should be thinking about? Uh, you know, as architects, uh, we really have the great fortune of, um, meeting with folks as they are 
as they're trying to make some big decisions and kind of helping them make those decisions. And, and the question of remodeling versus building new is one of those big questions. Um, so we talk a lot about, uh, about what they're really looking for. Generally, it's during a time of transition um, when they're talking about doing this, either new kids, kids getting a little older, kids leaving, them looking to downsize, you know. So all of those kinds of transitions kind of factor into this. So when we talk to clients about what to consider when they're doing these remodels or, or forever homes, we want them to think about what's happening right now, the thing that's, you know, forcing this decision, but also to think kind of 20 years from now. Um, and what does that look like for them? So that they're not making the decision based on what things look like just today. Uh, and as a mom of three kids, I have I have been through <laughs> infancy. <laughs> Uh, we are in the midst of teenagerdom. I just had one go to college last year, so I'm sort of in that trajectory <laughs> with them, and sometimes a little bit ahead of the game. Uh, generally, what we tend to focus on more so than what it looks like, per se, is how it's going to function. So we talk about how easy is it going to be for them to use, um, whether that's today, you know, how do they like to cook, how do they like to entertain, um, how do they see themselves doing that in 20 years? That's always the next question. Um, maintenance, you know, do you like to spend your weekends fishing or working in the yard? Um, if you like to spend them fishing, you may want to think about some different building materials and some ways about building that, that, um, that allow for that kind of lifestyle. Um, you know, if you're chasing your kids every weekend and you're going to soccer games, you may not have time to be focused on cleaning out the gutters or paint and trim. Um, so we talk about maintenance. Um, and, and we talk about how those um, how those things also correlate to kind of efficiency. You know, what what do they need that's predictable? And do they need their energy costs to be predictable? Is that something that if they are looking at wanting to spend more money on college or spend more money on travel if they've retired, you know, if we can sort of create some some sense of what their energy efficiency needs are going to be, um, that's also a sort of big part of that conversation. But all of that taps into really kind of, you know, what do you want your life to look like when this is done? What do you want it to look like today? And what do you want it to look like if you're going to be here for forever, 20 years from now? And, and if it's about I want to be able to entertain with my spouse on the screen porch um, or I want to be able to travel on the weekends and not worry about the house while I'm gone or, or what it is. We talk about what sort of lifestyle, and that really informs what we do just as much as the site or the materials they want to use or, you know, whether they love a white kitchen or don't love a white kitchen. Um, yeah. it, it's really about kind of those bigger picture things. No, I love that you do that. And I guess, you know, before diving into some of those great questions, because I love that you touched on the maintenance and the lifestyle, and I want to dive into that. But I guess going to your point, I mean, the one thing I see, you know, when we're meeting with clients, you know, they're asking about budget, right? Which any of our clients, they have a budget no matter what level they're yeah. building at. And and there's so much that goes into, should I remodel my house? Should I stay at the same house and tear it to the to concrete and go vertical again? Should I buy a new lot and, you know, purchase a new custom home? And a lot of times clients, I don't want to say get hung up, but they're very conscious about Am I overbuilding for my neighborhood? Am I overbuilding for, you know, the market? You know, and so how do you navigate, I guess, the wish list of the client where they see these mm -hmm. pictures and they want this amazing dream house and dream kitchen or maybe low maintenance house that you can help guide them because of lifestyle. So how do you you know handle that conversation with the client as far as budget, expectation, market, you know, especially if they're looking at just the finance portion of it? You know, we at the very beginning of a project, I mean, before we even put a proposal together, uh, we ask about what they're, and we tend not to call it a budget, we actually call it an investment target. You know, what do you want to invest in this home? Uh, because I think for a lot of people, that that helps them frame that conversation a little bit differently. Um, you know, if you are looking to make an investment that you want to flip in five years because you're going to be leaving, that's a different conversation. If you're making an investment in a forever home that's a 20-year-plus investment, that's a different conversation. So I think starting out just that very term, not necessarily budget, but investment, 
um, because you are going to get something out. It's not just a budget. It's not just what you're going to spend. It's what you're going to get out of it over that time frame. So we start at the very beginning. We ask that question at the outset. And when we are, we sort of frame our process so that I like to say we get pricing early and often. Um, so we try to engage contractors very early in the process. I, I don't, I can't keep a day-to-day -day dealing with what prices are every day. And they lately, clearly, they've been varying all over the place. Delays and I know framing costs have been all over the place recently. So we are, we encourage um, our clients to engage a contractor very early in that process so that we can get cost information and relate it back to scope very early in the process before we've done a full set of drawings. Um, we've got diagrams and a set of preliminary specifications so that we kind of know what we're talking about with some different options and get some order of magnitude costs around it. And then we can have another conversation with real numbers, with real investment targets, with, with real scope associated with it. And we can have a real heart to heart and say, all right, this is kind of where everything lays out. We can talk wish lists all day long, but but until you have some numbers and some drawings to kind of look at, I think it's really hard for people to make decisions. Um, and so what we want to do in those early stages is provide as much information as possible. And a lot of times we even ask a realtor to come on and experience realtor and give advice about comps in the neighborhood that they've seen over the last five years, what their projections are. They're very educated. Um, in terms of being able to provide that kind of information too. So those early stages of a, of a design process with us really are a lot about information gathering. Um, and armed with information, you can make much better decisions. Yeah, I, I love that you do that. I mean, that, that speaks to the value you're bringing because I think it's very few and far between, you know, contractors or architects, designers that are bringing in brokers and realtors. And I've seen on projects where you have a client that's looking at just the investment aspect of it, as you're mentioning, hey, we may sell this in five years or, you know, this is to get our kids through high school that we plan on downsizing. So we want to look at this realistically as an investment so the broker can really help say, look, you know, especially with finishes, this is what I've seen trending. This is what clients are liking right. and asking for. You know, so they could point right. you in the right direction. I love that you have a good pulse on pricing because I think the toughest thing for an architect is to have that ongoing database. You know, you're trying to match the client's budget, but at the same time, things are changing every day on labor availability, yeah. material. And so is there a close group of contractors you work with? Have you built that over the years? I mean, how have you built your database, I guess, of good, you know, teammates, if you will? I have some great contractors. I've been really fortunate to work with amazing contractors. Um, and uh, and having grown up here um, and then moved back here, uh, I have I have really been lucky um, in that sense that that I have really good trusted relationships with them. I, I tend to I tend to go through an RFQ process, or I encourage my clients to go through an RFQ process. They don't always want to do it. A lot of folks want to bid a project and they want to bid it out to 20 people, and that's fine. I I understand that you know price. Price pressure, I think, um, for a lot of folks tends to drive their process. Um, but I encourage an RFQ process, and that allows us to have conversations with contractors at the very beginning to understand whether or not they're a fit. And within that sort of group of probably, you know, five to eight contractors that I've worked with regularly, they can they can get engaged early on and help provide that information. Um, and so I do have a really good kind of trusted team um, and sort of a community of folks that I talk to um, on a regular basis. But I also think that that engaging and and having those conversations early on in that RFQ process, you know, price to a certain extent, it's gonna cost what it costs. Yep, um, it is. It's going to cost what it costs. And beyond that, there's a lot of different ways that builders build. Um, and, and some have, you know, full-time supervision. Some don't want full-time supervision. Some folks need somebody who can take care of the dog on the weekends when they're out of town. Um, some folks don't want to have anything to do with that. So it's kind of understanding personality fits and kind of being able to help uh, clients go through a process where they can find a, 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 a contractor and engage one that's a good fit for them, understanding that cost is probably going to be fairly similar for whatever five to eight contractors they've been, they've been talking to. 
Yeah, I love that you share that because I feel like when a client, uh, not to throw clients under the bus, because, you know, there's this understanding, hey, let's get the plans done, let's get the design, let's send out to three or four bids, let's get our most competitive one we move right. forward. Well, the problem with that, at least my experience has been over the last 15 years building, you know, outside of college is that, you know, it, it really puts the architect in a tough position and the designer because what ends up happening is, you know, every builder, as you mentioned, they have their own process, they have their own interpretation of your design, of your drawings. And so the bids typically are never apples for apples, but a lot of times if you're taking the lowest number, there's a reason why, or there's things missed or things, maybe the uh, expectations are different. And so the client ends up paying for that in the end, right? Whereas if you could bring the builder on from the beginning, well, now you have a good pulse, right? So as you're designing, you know, Taylor, and you're going through these designs, well, you have a contractor to your side that there's a camaraderie, there's understanding, and you can bounce ideas off each other. Will this work? Does this meet the budget? And then it also factors into the other conversations you're having in, in regard to maintenance and lifestyle and all these things, right? So there's that that handoff that really goes well, that re really creates a good positive experience for the client. Mm -hmm. And and it also helps the client perceive everybody working together as a team. Um, yeah. And I think that's a really important piece of that is that when they see me or understand that I have a good relationship with the builder and I'm going to call them and say, you know, I'm curious, have you ever built this this way before, or used this type of insulation, or I just took a continuing education class on this kind of flashing or roofing or whatever it is, have you used it before, what's your experience in? Um, uh, and they can say, ah, junk, don't touch it. Or yes, I've had a great experience with it. That They understand that that helps inform the whole process. I don't want to be throwing new materials or processes on a builder um, necessarily, that's generally not a great way to work sometimes. Uh, but but it, I think that team and that camaraderie and that information sharing um, gives them a sense of security um, and, and confidence. I love that, and and it's funny because you know you think a lot about the position you're in. If you're able to understand a client's budget or expectation, right? When you talk about, I, I love the term you use investment, not budget. So if you think about investment, you know some clients that you and I have experienced, you know. They're at two stages. One of them may be, hey, this is an investment. We're going to sell the home in five years, maybe 10 years, but this is our end goal. And you have other clients that say, look, I, I've done the flipping houses. Like I've moved. I want what I want. I understand I'm paying a premium, but this is my forever home. Like I'm going to be here and it's okay. So understanding that's going to set you up for success, you know, through design because you understand the value of their investment and what they're doing. Um, and also the discussions you're having, because if you think about purchasing a new car or going to meal prep for a dinner, right? If you go in the grocery store and you have a budget and you understand the expectations, how many people are going to attend, what type of food, you're going to be more targeted in putting that menu together, right? Just like a car, you don't expect the car salesman to like fit this imaginary wish list unless you give them a real number. Hey, I want to spend 50000 on a car. Okay, that's going to narrow it down in this realm. We have options A, B, and C, and here's the upgrades. You know, and, and it's really hard for customers to understand in regard to home construction, there's so many variables. And if you play this cat and mouse game where they don't share their numbers or their butt, you know, the investment that they're willing to do, it makes it really hard for you and I. It's very difficult. And we we um we are much better able to serve them when they're when they are open and forthright about about some of that some of that conversation that they're having internally. Because you're right, it's a guessing game. Um and I guess wrong a lot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's so funny. So what do, what do you prefer? Is it, Do you prefer new builds? Do you prefer remodeling? You know, there's, I know there's challenges and complexities to both. Um, you know, I, I, my first job um, after architecture school was in New York and I worked for a firm by Blender Bell that did mostly preservation work. Um, and we worked on Grand Central. I mean, I was probably doing bathrooms, but, but, uh, and, and Rockefeller Center. And so all of that stuff was kind of in the office when I was there kind of cutting my teeth. And so, you know, remodeling in that sense uh, was really exciting. Like we were, we were really sort of uncovering uh, uh, new ways of looking at old buildings and, and having people engage with them in a way that they hadn't in a long time. Um, and, and when I moved back to Birmingham, um, uh, that, that, I sort of kept that that mentality. Um, I enjoy remodeling. Sometimes you find the most interesting things when you're when you're doing uh, remodeling in a home, uh, and you you learn about the story of a house. And there's a lot of historic 
historic, older um, home stock around here. And so a lot of folks, there's a lot of sentimental value attached to those existing houses. So I do a lot of remodeling um, and renovation because that's what's here and because people love the houses that they're in. Um, so I don't know if I prefer it, but I, but I do enjoy it a lot. Um, I think it's a, there's something sort of detective um, like about being able to to find what was there and and also to solve problems with kind of a lot of constraints um, associated with an existing space. New construction can be a challenge too, uh, but in a in a different way. I mean, I think it's sort of identifying from scratch where people want to go. Um, uh, all of a sudden their world is open to them. Um, and you know, do they want four bedrooms? Do they want five bedrooms? Do they need this kind of kitchen or this kind of kitchen? Sometimes the choices that are available to them that hadn't been previously available to them take some time to kind of kind of wade through those. So from a design perspective, um, there's some fun challenges that go along with that with really sort of helping the homeowner kind of hone in on what they really want out of a home. Um, and when they come to the table, sort of understanding that in a new build, it can be a really exciting process because you can tailor very much what what that house looks like for them, specific to their needs. And that's, that's a fun job. So I, I don't really have a preference. I tend to do more of the renovations just because that's kind of what's been available to me. Um, but uh, I, I love new construction as well. Well, I will say that doing renovations, remodels, especially if you're doing historic you know, mm -hmm. or, um, you know, those projects, they, they, they can be very challenging. There's a lot of, you know, uh, I don't want to say restrictions, but there's requirements and there's regulation. And then there's also the complexity of just working mm -hmm. on older home and the limitations there you have to work around. So being that you had a lot of experience in commercial, you know, working for, you know, buyer in, in New York and that, mm -hmm. you know, big firm there and working on these amazing projects in Manhattan, you know, what made you, I guess, push, you know, to this point in your career, we're doing more residential. What, did you like commercial residential? Was you know something more drawn to you? It's kind of a it's kind of a story actually. So um, I uh, I had been working in New York and uh, we lived there and I was pregnant with our first child um, and sort of you know it was kind of like, it was and were so, you living in Manhattan at the time? Living in Manhattan. Wow. Um, and so. Our oldest was born in February of 2001, um, and so we were trying to decide whether or not we were going to stay in the city or move to the suburbs, and then September 11th happened, um, and I had actually been working uh, as a consultant to the Port Authority, part of the point of having our first child, um, and I had been doing design work for the mall underneath the trade center for years, so I had spent three days a week at the trade center um and honestly when we moved to ridgewood like september ridgewood new jersey about five days after the, the towers went down um so and was that intentional had you already planned to move or we had was already planned it it just it was sort of coincidental and so all of those things kind of happening all at once i had a six month old um a, a job that i had loved had been sort of connected with this tragedy and and we knew people who had died in the towers, and it was very personal. Um, and and then sort of the idea of being across the river and not, you know, when that happened, we couldn't leave the city for a little while. We were we were sort of stuck. We had all these evacuation plans. So the idea of like continuing to work in Manhattan and being at home and and, and having a baby at home was kind of more than I could take. So there were lots of sort of factors. And at that point, I was like, okay we're going to make a decision. And that decision was that I was going to start working from home. And so when I did that, um, I started doing some little commercial work, um, but really started diving into residential work. It was available to me. It fit my schedule. Um, I was a young mom. Um, I was able to coordinate with people that I had worked with prior who were doing consulting work on residential jobs. And so I just kind of fell into it um, based on the circumstances that were happening at the time. And Ultimately, um, I, I was able to communicate to my clients because I was like them. They were worried about where they were going to have their whole family over to watch TV on Sunday afternoons to watch the football game and where the kids yep. were going to be playing. <laughs> I was worried about that, too. Um, and so I think that, that there was a sort of 
there was kind of a, 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 a of an alignment between my clients and my own life and sort of the kind of work that I wanted to do and the kind of space I needed to be in as, as, a, as a young mom, as, a, as an architect at the same time. I love that story. It's funny because you, you know, with, with life, a lot of us, you know, we work in different fields and you kind of get these experiences and then you find, you know, not that you weren't passionate about commercial architecture, working on these amazing projects right. in Manhattan, you know, but you find something that really hits home that you realize, Hey, I'm good yeah. at this and I can relate and here we go. And then once you have that passion behind, you know, sky's the limit, right? Yeah. You know, and then, it's been great. Which, which is super exciting. So, you know, fast forward to nine years ago. Now here you are back in Alabama, back where you're from and starting your firm in a recession, you know, how was that, you know, what, where did that decision come from? Because I know you're kind of freelancing, I believe at the time, but now it's right. like official, we're going to start our firm. It's not the greatest of economies for construction, you know, on a national level. So, so what caused that jump? Um, I really had a good friend and, uh, uh, kind of the closest thing to family, but not family, um, that I had grown up with. And they had purchased a home in a nearby suburb, and I happened to be at the Y on the, I think I was on an elliptical trainer, and she hopped up next to me and said, you need to come look this house. And I said, I don't know if I can do that. And she said, yes, you can. And so we started a project together, and it was a, it was a big project. Um, and I had a nine-month-old at the time who was our third, um, and uh and sort of that was kind of what kicked it off. It was really somebody asking me. Um, and I, in retrospect, I'm really lucky. I've done a, lot of, done a lot of work for that family in various iterations, brothers, sisters. Um, but that, uh, that's kind of what started it. And it, has, it was, there was a lot of ebb and flow during those years. There were a couple of years where there was a lot of work. Um, and then there were a couple of years where there was, there was nothing. Um, and Luckily, at the time, um, it was it sort of worked with our family, um, and I could kind of pull back and be mom for a little while, and then three months later, when a project really got going, I could step into the fray a little bit. So it allowed a little bit of that kind of ebb and flow, um, but it it was it was definitely rough going for a little while. I'm lucky because I moved back home, and I I know I grew up here. My parents grew up here. My grandparents. Up here, my sister lives here. Um, I had the good fortune of knowing a lot of folks, and that that helped generate uh, generate work. Surely, um, so and, and my dad is an architect, so I grew up in a firm. Um, he does commercial work, um, so that that helped sort of name recognition wise. I think too, people people saw that and knew that I was an architect, and there was a level of trust that I probably hadn't demonstrated yet, but they figured that. that Dad could do it. I could do. <laughs> well, in fairness, you did have some good credibility, though, working you know, <laughs> Fire Blinder Bell, right, New York City. I mean, that's that's a good resume there. You know, so I guess from the family side of things, I mean, being a mother of three, I mean, is there, you know, did you take your three children job sites? You know, is there an oh, yeah. aspiration for them to be involved and follow the architecture? Um, I don't think any of them want to be an architect. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I see how hard uh, mom there, works. There may be. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of that, but um, it um, the, I have definitely uh, taken them to job sites. My youngest was really um, he was kind of a wingman for for a lot of work, um, and would show up on job sites. And occasionally, a super would call me or text me with a little picture of a you know a little toy that Edward had left <laughs> in, in like some raw concrete or something. You know, there would be like a, a Star Wars figure with a hand sticking out or something. Um, and I have pictures of them on all sorts of job sites walking around, or I would send them over uh, to go measure something with with uh, with tape. Um, so they are very familiar with with what I do, and um, and it's been fun to have them around. You know, I grew up with that. On Sunday afternoons, we would go to Dad's job site. We would drive around and um, go visit whatever was under construction. Um, it's kind of the way I grew up and, uh, I don't subject all of them to it all the time, but I definitely did, did do it. Um, and from time to time they still come and take a look. It's been funny. Some of them, some of the projects have been for, um, uh, families that they're friends with that they, and so they'll go to somebody's house for an event or something like that. And they'll, 
they'll sort of have a knowing smile and say, yeah, I, w- I was here when the walls were being framed. Um, you may not know it. <laughs> yeah, that I think that's a fun part for kids, though. And even us, I mean, even a lot of people ask, you know, I guess the joys we have in construction. And and the one, you know, the, the part of that is, you know, it's a tough industry. There's a lot of challenges with construction and design and architecture and, you know, the labor behind it and the critical thinking and trying to make all the stuff work with building codes and budgets and everything that we deal with. Um, but, but the fun thing is at the end of the day to see a project finish and see the happiness of the client or drive by in the years to come and see that masterpiece or that you were part of that, right? Um, yeah. There's a satisfaction there, right? That, you know, you're building, you're actually building something that people can use. Um, you know, so thinking of that with your designs, you know, being an architect, especially heavy in residential, you know, one thing we should all think about is aging in place, right? Like, and, and you spoke about this early in the conversation, you know, when, as you're going through that interview with the client, you know, you're trying to understand their needs and, you know, you have to start thinking about, are you going to have maybe in-laws living with you or parents living with you? Are you yourself going to need ADA features, you know? So how does that come into play where you're thinking about overall design and aesthetic, but also the convenience and aging part of, of that aspect? Well, it's, it's a hard topic to bring up. I mean, aging in place is probably the least sexy thing you can say. Like, there's yeah. nothing sort of non greatness about that. You start to bring, my dermatologist actually said, you need to stop talking about aging. Um, <laughs> so, um, it's, it's, can be a hard it's actually an easier conversation to have with someone in their 40s than it is with somebody in their 70s um and and there is a lot of um there's a lot of hesitation um to sort of bring it up nobody wants to be faced with kind of the reality that 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 at some point we all may need some accommodations um and and that can vary from anything from having, you know, your knee replaced um, or a torn ACL for a teenager um, or, you know, having some sort of accommodation is makes living in a home easier. So we try to frame it a little bit as these are features that you may not need today, but we're going to build it so that if you need them, they're available to you. Um, so when we're building new, we just build 36 inch doorways. We just we just do that. So yeah, we you don't make a ask that yeah. question. We just mm-hmm. do it. You know, we put in blocking in the walls so that we can put in grab bars. We talk about how great looking herbless showers are. Um, yeah. uh, we, we and then we have other conversations that um, because I think aging in place can feel limiting. Um, I think it's a question of actually really how you intend to live. So we're working on a kitchen that's under construction right now. Um, for a couple who um, loves to, who takes care of their grandkids um, on a regular basis. They've got little ones with them a lot. And so the whole kitchen was sort of designed with the capacity to be able to cook with their grandkids. And um, so a lot of the features that we quote unquote see for ADA or aging in place are actually really good for just about everybody. So when you think about um, a countertop that's a little bit lower, so the kids can pull up a chair rather than a stool, which tips over, um, and and sit and roll out cookie dough with grandma. That's a pretty good feature. It also works for a wheelchair if one yeah. needs it. Um, uh, or an induction cooktop, so you're not reaching over a gas flame and the kids aren't going to touch something. So a lot of the there's a lot of overlap between some of those features that we think about for aging in place and just living. Um, when I was in New York. Uh, uh, the laundry room was in our building and I had the baby and the baby Bjorn and I had the laundry. And I remember trying to sort of negotiate turning the door handle um, with all of that stuff in my hands all the time. And, and the idea that you can just put lever handles everywhere and I could have hit it with my elbow and walked right yeah. in. That doesn't have anything to do with my being older. That had to do with that. I had a baby and a bunch of laundry in my hands. So a lot of these kind of aging in place features are really about ease of use. And facilitating, you know, easier ways to live as opposed to facilitating somebody who needs something because they've had an injury or a disability or or is concerned about falls or stuff like that. A lot of it is just common sense. Well, I, I love the strategy behind that because, you know, most people, as you mentioned, when you think of aging or ADA, like it's, you know, from a design aesthetic, like, you know, ADA, yeah. as most of us are accustomed, it's not attractive, right? It's not convenient. You know, there's not like 
the most visually appealing aesthetic. But when you start thinking practicality, you know, when you start saying levers on your door so you can open it, you know, easily, you know, a kid can open it or curbless showers, which, hey, in a high-end custom home, everyone wants a curbless shower, right? It looks good. Yeah. You have that frameless glass to the floor. It's perfect. You know, think about the wide doors, the wide hallways, and not only is it great for wheelchair access or convenience, walking by people in the hallway, but when you think about, you know, moving in your furniture, how much of a pain is it moving into a house where you can't turn your sofa around the corner, right? So wide hallway, now you're thinking about the end result in furnishings. And so you're creating this lifestyle that is not only aesthetically pleasing, but it's also convenient, you know, for that customer. Right. Practical. And and it's um, that's a whole lot easier to talk about than it is to say, you know, in 20 years, the likelihood of your of, of your needing some sort of accommodation um, uh, that you will need a walker. Nobody wants nobody wants to talk about that. But they they yeah. I don't. Um, but they 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 do want to hear how having certain features in their home can make it more usable or more user friendly. How they can have somebody over. And for a lot of folks in their 40s, I think. Um, you know, we are now, in some cases, looking at having our folks come and stay with us, either for a short period of time or an extended period of time. So how do we build spaces that accommodate that? Um, and, and in the short term, that may mean that your parents come and stay for a few months or are there to help take care of kids during an illness, um, or you're taking care of them during an illness. But as you, as we age, sometimes that's caregiver space. So so those kinds of features can transition based on where you are kind of life cycle, um, but but they aren't specifically relegated to, to ADA or or aging in place. Yeah, I love that. And and have you seen your clientele in Alabama, have they started to gravitate towards um, maybe they're sensitive? So low VOC, you know, volatile organic compound, you know, you think about like paints that kind of have that fume. Um, healthy living, you know, low maintenance, as you mentioned, low maintenance finishes that they're not going to have to maintain, whether, you know, they're engineer courts or they're looking at rain gutters or the carbon footprint, sustainability, you know, net zero. I mean, all these little things that a lot of people are thinking about are, are you seeing a growing, I guess, need to market your firm towards that angle or, or is that even being requested yet by your clientele? In some cases it's being requested and sometimes we talk about the benefits, um, without without sort of mentioning sustainability. Sustainability has, people have all sorts of understandings of what yeah. sustainability is. So it's not even about point of view. It's, it's very hard to define in, in a lot of ways. So we can talk about green architecture or sustainability and people sort of glaze over. They're not really quite sure what it is. But if I say we want to use this, this fiber cement siding, that there's a new product that you won't have to paint it for yeah. 20 years. And now we can miter the corners so it looks like cedar. Um, and it's going to last a lot longer and it's not going to warp. That's a whole different conversation. Um, so, or we can talk about um, insulation that they won't have to replace over a period of time. Or that has the added benefit of deadening sound. Or, you know, so we, we sort of, we, we, they do want those kinds of features, but I think the kind of phraseology associated with them can be off-putting. So we really have to talk about it in terms of what is the benefit to you? Like, how does this support, you know, the kinds of things we talked about with it ease of use or, or maintenance or, or accessibility? What are those kind? does it facilitate any of those things? And then when that happens, then we can have a real conversation about whether that's something of value to them or not. Um, and, you know, code, with codes changing and shifting, and, it, and sometimes, you know, I don't. It, it, there are times that there there was a a shift in the residential code in my little community that didn't get publicized very well, and it was fine. It turned out okay, but but those things shift in communities from time to time, and you don't know from one little township to the next whether they're on 2009 or 2018, and and what energy code they're using. So you have to sort of set some of our own standards and talk about what's going to be the value. No, I love that. And how have you seen, I guess, now we're impacted by COVID, right? Most of us, I'm sure COVID has had an impact. I mean, getting away from the sustainability, but, you know, people are maybe in their homes longer or working from home or, you know, kids that were at school are now homeschool at home on computers. So, you know, the data usage on their internet, right? And you're trying to figure out 
do I have a quiet place to work, you know, do architecture if my kids are doing homeschool? So how have you seen, I guess, that transition now, not only today, but moving forward just with everything with COVID-19? Um, I think I, we did a survey um, back in April and we did a little Google form survey and we sent it out kind of all over the country. Um, we, uh, at the firm, and, and I have lived all over the place and the folks at my firm have lived kind of all over the place. And so we sent it all over the place uh, to a big range of ages um, and to sort of get a sense of what they were thinking about while they were all stuck at home and what, how are their houses been serving them. And we got some really interesting feedback. Um, I had really expected a lot of people to say they needed more space. We had sent a lot of those surveys to people who were living in apartments and cities and people saying, oh, we've got to have more space. And that really wasn't the case. Most of the time, um, it was about flexibility of space, was being able to change the use of a space quickly, um, whether that was through built-ins where they could store printers or or scanners or whatever it is they needed, monitors, and turn the dining room into an office and then back into a dining room at night or a place to put the gym equipment. It was a lot about flexibility. That was really the biggest, um, the, the, the most numbers of people responded to our questions about flexibility. They were really looking for spaces that were easily transitioned from one to the other. Um, I think the other interesting um, takeaway from the survey was uh, that outdoor space and access to the outside um, during this particular period was especially important. Um, and whether that was a screen porch or a deck or something that was immediately adjacent to the house or whether it was we live in a neighborhood where we have lots of trails that are accessible to us, um, places we can go walk, um, sort of the availability of outdoor space, whether it was private or sort of semi-public, was something else that really came up high on people's sort of wish list um, when we were talking about those. You know, beyond that, people gave us great stories about, um, you know, they had had to be in different rooms and they had been putting up uh, blankets on the walls or operating in a closet so that they could have Zoom calls. And, you know, that, that I'm sure is happening and will continue to happen. Um, it will, you know, we talk a lot now when we're talking to our clients just over the last few months about just adding some insulation and interior walls so that you have some sound deadening capacity and using solid core doors and, and things that will separate spaces. Um, we had some feedback on public and private spaces and whether people thought that there was a balance with that. You know, were you working in a place where the kids were constantly running through or did you have a private space where you could go? Um, so we got a lot of really great feedback and, and to that end, what we are talking about with our clients is that feedback and saying, okay, here, here's what we're hearing from a lot of people right now is that flexible spaces are really important. How can we help you create space in this new edition that's going to provide you that flexibility? Because we might be working from home forever um, or, you know, to a certain extent, or your kids may be home a lot more than they thought they were going to be home or you thought they were going to be home. So how can we help facilitate some of that in an easy way that doesn't, we're not building a whole new soundproof office for you, but how can we create a space that has that kind of flexibility? Oh, I love that you shared that because what's interesting as you're speaking about that, I was thinking, okay, now what's the marketing element to this? You know, it's funny because a lot of us are finding solutions for our clients. Maybe as you mentioned, they're not so much looking for added space, but maybe they're looking at more convenience or separation, right? Where they can have right. a conference call on Zoom or a podcast such as this and not have, you know, kids coming in and out or running behind you on the camera, right? Uh, you mm -hmm. know, so that's really important. But then as a company, you start thinking, okay, in our market, you know, there is opportunity for someone that's remodeling. How can I market that? How can I showcase what we're doing? And I guess an example for us, we have a client in Paradise here, here locally in Paradise Valley. And, um, you know, they, they looked at it this way. Hey, the gyms are closed. The dry sauna's closed. The cold plunge is closed. I need an office. I'm a fine, you know, finance. I'm at home. And so we didn't really change the footprint of the house, but we, what we did, we catered it to what are things that were mm -hmm. important to them, right? We redid the backyard because that indoor outdoor living. So now the kids can go outside, they can swim, you know, they can be outside and run, you know, so it's instead of just being like a desert landscape, let's have it more green. Let's have a lush, a little place for the kids to go stretch their legs. And then we have our cold plunge, we have our sauna. So if it's closed, now we can do this at home. And so we've turned that into marketing. Okay, well, 
you know, and it's funny as other clients see that and they're like, oh, I didn't even think about that. Like, that's a great idea. If the gym's closed, it's at my house. Well, now I can stay healthy. And so it's funny how you can take, you know, you know, all companies have to evolve. I mean, that's what's going to separate you. And that's what you've done, Taylor. You said, okay, well, here's a tragedy that's happened on a national level. Like, how can we better the lives of our clients, you know, and how can we market that? And um, it's been an interesting, I think just the last six months have really been eye-opening um, for me. And I know as we work, just, you know, navigating just the day-to-day, how are we going to do this? How are we going to build this now? Um, but, but thinking about the different kinds of conversations we can have with our, with our clients that will, that will give them some value for, for what they're about to invest in. And, and, and the reality of the situation is that that, that conversation may have changed from, from what it would have been a year ago. Um, uh, it may not be that they're building a big house where they can have 50 people over all the time. They may be more focused on making sure that they, they have what, that their, you know, that their laundry room works really well. I've gotten a lot of that. Is that <laughs> We're funny? doing a lot of laundry. Let's make sure our laundry room works really well. We, we seem so to be that, putting in, yeah, I was going to say, we seem to be putting in two washers, dryers, and the laundry uh-huh. room, one of the master, right? I mean, you just see that. Mm-hmm. So, so it's interesting because to your point, I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're understanding the market conditions and you're evolving as a company, right? You're pivoting. You know, so getting back to, I, I mean, you really made some good points because I've, you know, getting back to the ADA conversation, which I think is really important. I mean, we live in Phoenix and I do have a lot of clients that are, you know, from the Midwest or second homeowners, you know, and they're at a point in their life where they're purchasing a second home and they're retired or getting close to retirement. So it's a vacation home. They're here in the winter. They go, you know, it's because it's really nice in Phoenix in the winter. They yeah. go back to the Midwest in the summer when it's really nice there. Right. Um, you know, so you start thinking about how can we beautify the home, but still keep it accessible. So I guess getting back to that, you know, given the tendency of senior living spaces um, to seem institutional, how can we design spaces that don't scream that you're in a facility, right? That you're in this aging house, you know, and I guess to that point too, I mean, this is a double question for you is, you know, what is a certified aging in place specialist? Well, I think I'll, I'll answer the the second question first, if that's okay. Um, uh, an aging in place specialist, certified aging in place specialist, this is a lot of, of, of initials. Um, National Association of Home Builders put together a program with AARP. There are a couple of other uh, groups involved, but essentially it's a certification that's provided, it's actually really interesting. Um, it's provided to folks beyond sort of the, the immediate sort of construction industry. So. Um, I spent three days in a training session at a rehab facility in Chattanooga um, uh, with a, a, I say he's a young man. He's not a young man. Um, he acts like a young man. He spoke constantly for, for three days. Um, he's amazing. A wealth of knowledge. Steve Hoffaker, who did the training. But the, the interesting thing about the training was that it involved, you know, there were a couple of contractors there. I was the only architect. There was an interior designer. But there were also occupational therapists and physical therapists. Uh, uh, medical equipment suppliers. So it really sort of involves a kind of a broad range of, of people. And so the, the aging in place specialist um, designation um, and training focuses on kind of that team aspect of it. So when we are approaching a renovation, um, I have conversations not just with the interior designer and the contractor, but with the owner's permission, I may also be talking to their physical therapist or their occupational therapist or somebody who understands if they are in a kind of urgent situation, um, or not even urgent, but but immediate sort of concern situation, whether it's it's a kind of maybe a degenerative disease, it might be MS or Parkinson's, kind of what their trajectory is, and then what personally um, they may be dealing with. Um, And so we really try and tailor our renovation solutions um, uh, to the needs of that individual. So it's it's less of a sort of blanket set of prescriptions like ADA is. Um, aging in place specialists really kind of have the opportunity to, to look at a broader perspective and then go and tailor um, their design solutions to that to that individual. And it really does take a team. Um, so that's kind of what aging in place specialists do, um, and the certification requires continuing education. But it it it, um, 
I enjoyed it because, like I said, it it helped me kind of understand that that there are other folks that are involved that can inform that and make that design that much better for that person. Um, and everybody may experience their own sort of aging trajectory a little bit differently. Um, and how can we be be very specific to that client and serve them well? Um, so I, all that said, that's kind of the first way that we don't make aging in place scream institutional is that if you know that your client needs X, you can tailor a design solution for that particular problem um, so that you're not sort of covering everything with white plastic grab bars because you're worried that you're, that, because that's, that's the rule or that's the law. Um, you're sort of saying, okay, really, we're worried about slips and falls in this particular area. So we're going to focus this. Um, we have a, um, we've had clients with Parkinson's. Um, we've also had clients who um, uh, are, are shorter in stature. Um, and so, you know, the, the ADA shower handle height were too tall for her. So we wanted to sit down in the shower with her and her occupational therapist and make sure we had the, the hand shower held at exactly the right place. Um, that doesn't look like a, an institution. That looks like something that fits her. Um, so that's kind of the first way I think that it, it keeps it from screaming senior living. Um, and is I think that, the other is, thing that happens. Well, and is that a certification you mentioned is through the NHB, the National Association uh -huh. of Mobility? Is that who gives you the certification and, and then yeah. the continuing education? So you actually are like credit, have credentials to do yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and some of that is sort of basic in architecture training, but, but I learned a lot from talking to the medical supply people about, you know, how difficult it is to install one kind of stair lift versus a different kind of chair lift and what kind of the weatherization protocol were and, and thinking about elevators a little bit differently. So there were all, you know, having that kind of information, um, in a very sort of focused, three-day session um, really helped me kind of see things a little bit more broadly than I think I would have as just an architect approaching a, a client looking to redo a bathroom or to rework a closet or to add an elevator or whatever that might be. Um, I think the other thing that helps, getting back to the, to the senior living part of it, the other thing that helps is the manufacturers have finally gotten on board um, and are starting, I think, to understand that there is a market um, for for high design. Um, I think that I, I said it, and I'm sure I got it from somewhere. I, I'm not going to say it was original. Um, there's no best buy date on good design. We don't age out of things looking nice. Um, and my older clients can have much more sophisticated tastes than, than some of my younger clients. And so to sort of throw bland, um, uh, accessible design at them is kind of insulting, um, and, and I don't want to do that. So, luckily, I think, like I said, some of the major manufacturers of residential products have kind of caught up with that. Um, so, you know, Kohler and Moen and Brizo are all designing grab bars that match their plumbing suites. Um, uh, I also think uh, smart home technology allows us to implement a lot of really great for safety strategies, but it being totally invisible. So we can put sensors on for night lights so that you don't have to have, you know, stair lights around the corner. You can run an LED strip. So I think technology and smart home technology affords us the capacity to kind of make really beautiful senior living spaces that don't look like traditional senior living spaces. Well, I, I love that because when I was at the National Builder Show this past January, um, you know, KBIS, to your point, there were a lot of companies that had a lot of um, ADA or accessible product designs that were, you know, really spoke to the masses, right? They were nice or beautiful and they're still functional, which is really important. And I think this is like a really important topic because when you think about, you know, it, if I look at it from, if I'm doing an energy efficient home, right, I'm going to get, make sure I have, um, an energy consultant, right, that's going to come in and the right architect and the right designer that understands energy efficiency and loss and, you know, and, and how we can keep that energy up in the house. And and so there's a lot of strategy in that design and those selections. And you think about it very similar to what you're doing is you're going to get, you know, the physical therapist and you're going to get the medical professionals and the client. And so in essence, you're doing the same thing just with the more advanced team that's now catered to the client and 
understanding what they absolutely need and how to design that and then incorporate the beauty behind it. Mm -hmm. And and so let me ask you this, when you're doing that though, over the years as, as, as you become a specialist in that, Taylor, do you feel that, um, you know, that aging in place design, does that increase the value of the home? Does that decrease? Is it pretty consistent with staying the same? So I just, I read it, it's sitting on my desk right now. There, there was a study put out by the Joint Center for Housing Studies of Harvard University. And one of the topics that it covered, and I don't have the numbers exactly, was the, the, the numbers of um, individuals over the age of 65 um, projected within the next five years. And I think that by, here's, okay, by 2035, um, uh, 49.6 million older households and the home ownership rate for those folks over 65 is 81%. Wow. And that number is going to continue to grow. So we're talking about a tremendous cohort of the population. I mean, I think right now uh, we're at 20% of the population is over 65%. I mean, is over 65 years old. And, and the AARP has done studies that said that 90% of those people want to stay in their homes. So... I think that by creating housing stock or renovating existing housing in great neighborhoods where people already live, where they're around their families or their drugstore or their parks or the restaurants that they enjoy going to, when we sort of make those renovations available to them, we're also making it available to the next folks that, that want to buy that house. And um, so I think it absolutely increases the value of the home. Um, I think it increases the value of the home, not just for future homeowners who might be considering aging in place or making that their next forever home, but also certainly folks with, um, who have family members who have disabilities um, or who may be, uh, or who may have injuries. Um, uh, so creating ease of use never diminishes the value of the home. Um, it can only increase it. Just by sheer numbers alone, that that demand is there um, and isn't going to do anything but increase. Um, so I absolutely think that it um, that it increases the value of the home. I, I think that's great perspective. I mean, you think about all the variables out there, right? Um, when you're looking in a neighborhood that's, you know, good proximity to downtown or to the airport or, you know, safe neighborhoods right. or good schools, uh, you know, the parks, the amenities that are nearby there's value already in that real estate. We understand real estate markets in every city, right? Uh, but then you think about like a lot of young people now aren't buying homes, at least the younger demographic, they're renting, you know, they're, in, you know, more condensed areas, but as they get older, right, that's when you want to settle down, get a home. And then now with people living longer, you know, being healthier, like, so that age is going to continue after that plus 65. I mean, we're going to see this in 15 years where people living longer now at a point where they want to buy a home financially, you know, because it's hard as, you know, a young college kid coming out to buy a home. So all the demographics are pushing that way. So yeah, right. if you have a great design that's for aging a place and ease of use, I can see the value to, you know, all the clientele that's going to soon be hitting that demo in every big city. And you don't have to put everything in right now. You know, if if we build so that there's blocking in the in the in the walls in the shower and that we build yeah, in the curbless, you don't future. have to put all that stuff in right now. You're building it in for the future so that you don't have to whip everything out should you need it. Um, uh, my dad, he probably get mad at me for telling us, but he had his knees replaced and, uh, and we had to call and get a grab bar to get in. It was an eight inch curve on the shower. Um, and he couldn't get in it. And he was furious that we were going to have to put a grab bar in and wanted to put a suction cup grab bar in and a suction <laughs> cup was not going to hold him when he was trying to get over that eight inch curve. So, so thinking about had we had that available to him, it would have been a much easier process than it was to drive through the, you know, the lath and the metal lath and, you know, tile set and essentially concrete to be able to get a grab bar into a shower with an eight inch curb. Um, that ease and that capacity to be adaptable down the long run, that's just as value, valuable as anything else. So I think if, if we're building with that future in mind, um, because it's pretty inevitable, uh, you know, there is going to be a consistent growth in that population. Like you said, there's going to be demand. They want to own their own homes. They want to stay next to their grandkids. They want to be in places that are familiar to them. Um, and that's good for them. If they can stay there and do that safely, that's all positive. So we should make sure that that's available to them in terms of the housing and the renovations that we, we build. 
So do you have any other pet peeves in architecture? I guess I say that, you know, you kind of alluded to that already. You spoke about when the, when the architect hasn't f- had enough foresight to think about potential grab bars or eight inch curb and someone aging in place, and, you know, some of these inconveniences, right. That they're not thinking through, you know, are there other things that, um, you know, as architect, I'm sure every time you go into a hotel or you travel, like there's going to be no. things you see because you do it. So there's just things that stick out. We can't, we can't, you know, things like tile not aligning, uh, grab bars, <laughs> not, not those are the kind of things that set me off. Uh, you know, not, not putting the lights in the right place or the, and I tend to notice lighting makes that a big difference. It makes the a lighting is a big difference, and just the color temperature. I mean, that may be actually one of my biggest pet peeves. And I don't know if that's an architect problem or a, or a homeowner problem, but where they have all lighting, different LED bulbs with different shades, di- different, and you've got a thirty-five hundred K and a twenty-seven hundred K, and they're in the yeah. same room, and and you can't get you know. Anyway, so I, I think there's a there's lots of little sort of twi- twitchy kinds of things that that kind of bug me. Um, but but I do love the profession, and I really feel I think my biggest pet peeve, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with with architecture, is I think we've we've sort of put it out there is this perception that that we um, as architects uh, don't design for for everybody, and we really do. Um, and most of us um, are just you know I'm a mom of three kids. I'm I had a minivan. I, I'm not any different. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> <laughs> it was black, but it was still a minivan. <laughs> Uh, and and so we we're living those lives too, and we're sort of working through some of those same same life issues too. And so that's what makes us able to do a closet um, and and work through it with you. We're not we shouldn't be solely reserved for big projects or what you think an architect should be for. We really we really are capable of being helpful and providing value for all sorts of different kinds of projects. And part of that's our fault. We don't we don't tell that story often enough. Um, uh, and so I think that that's that's an internal issue. Well, I, I love that because I mean the reality is Taylor. I mean you've done such a great job. You know, a ton of experience, commercial, residential, historic, new build, and so you have just a lot of value to bring the customer. And that's the key term, right? The more value you bring, the better it's going to be. And the fact that you're a mom, you have three kids, you have your architecture firm is centered on families and design, right? That speaks to you know yeah. to people, and I'm sure that's what attracts your clientele to your firm. So Taylor, what's um, upcoming and exciting for you? Well, we just launched this Thrive at Home consultation service. So one of the things we were noticing is that a lot of folks had questions about whether or not they should stay in their house or they should sell it. And um, those are conversations. You know, I should really have a counseling degree on the side. Um, those are conversations. <laughs> I think we all should in our profession. <laughs> can get a little fraught. Uh, and so, but they're easier. Like I said, if you've got numbers or some or recommendations to kind of have a conversation around. So. Rather than investing in a sort of big set of drawings, we really are targeting a consulting service that's a kind of, we come in, we're able to kind of give recommendations based on what we find in the existing conditions of the house, have good conversations about what you love and what you want to change and where you see yourself in 20 years and and provide a very sort of customized report with some recommendations in it that allows people to really start that conversation. And I think that's an opportunity for us to provide value to more folks um, who aren't maybe ready to start a renovation process, but don't really know where else to start. Um, and it gives them the value of kind of talking to a professional who's been doing it for a long time and getting that advice without the commitment of a major project. And so that's, it's called Thrive at Home. We're really, we're really excited about it. It's a, it's a new service that we're offering and we're finding that it's, I, I think it's, it's a lot of fun for us too. Um, oh, I can imagine. Because what we really do is like talking to people. So Yeah. And it brings so much value to what you're doing already. And where can our listeners find you, Taylor? Um, TPDarchitect.com is our website. And I'm on Instagram at TPDarchitect. Um, and that sort of feeds into Facebook and LinkedIn, too. So we're, we're kind of all over social media. But our website is TPDarchitect.com. I love it. You're doing it right to be on all those platforms. It's so important. <laughs> I have, a, I have a, an 18-year-old who's been telling me where I need to be. <laughs> It's always good to have one of those around the house. Trust oh, me. yeah, it's great. Consultant, social media consultant. Yes. Well, thanks so much, Taylor. You've been amazing. Thanks so much for sharing everything Appreciate you did. It. Thank you. This was fun. So, again, a big thanks to uh, Taylor for coming on and making time today. And, again, just the conversation we had about how you can make design really flow for those depending on their need and still make it 
look desirable, right? Which is super key. And, and the talent behind that, the research, the development, the networking, you know, it's so important. And again, just thinking about the investment of our clients and the more value we could bring to them. You know, if they're gonna remodel, if they're doing a new build and why, you know, what's the reason behind it? How do we understand the questions to ask? And, you know, that flexibility of space is just so important. So again, great time discussing with her. You can see again, she's case in point of the value of, you know, working for a good firm, working for a good company, understand that experience. And then that way, when you start your own firm, you have that knowledge base. And then how do you build from that? How do you create that lead generation? So big thanks to Taylor for making time and her for reaching out. She's been a big advocate of the podcast. So much thanks to her. And again, if any of you uh, listening would love to be a guest, feel free to reach out and email us. Uh, let us know the topics you'd like to discuss. Uh, we're very welcoming to that to, as we continue to grow our audience. So let us know if there's something that you have to offer and would be of great benefit to our listeners.